Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great, legendary Eric Seidel. Uh, I've known Eric for a long time. Uh, he's somebody, uh, we don't spend a ton of time together, but whenever we get together, uh, we feels like the two of us can talk forever and ever. And uh, I consider him a pal. And I've admired him long before um, I got to know him. Uh, Eric, uh, when he was very young in 1988, played in uh, the World Series of Poker main event, and he was the runner-up to Johnny Chan, which was depicted, and we will talk about this in the uh, movie that matters a lot to both of us, Rounders. And um, since then, uh, he is one of the absolute most successful tournament poker players in history. Uh, Eric is the only player in history to have earned more than $5 million a year in winnings in multiple years. He did it in 2011, 2015, 2016. No other player's done it more than once. He ranks fourth on the all-time money list, total career live earnings of almost $38 million. Uh, and um, more than that, uh, he's uh, uh, largely responsible for the hit book, The Biggest Bluff, written by Maria Konnikova, who came under Eric's tutelage. Uh, and he's a member of the Poker Hall of Fame. He's also a completely solid human being, um, a loyal person, one of the most well-loved people in, in the game, and most uh, players of his level are largely hated and people are jealous of them, but Eric has somehow found a way by being a decent human to... Um, defang most of his uh, competitors uh, as a human being. Uh, and he's also a music fan uh, as, in, as insane as I am. And that's another thing we talk about a lot in, in real life. Eric, thanks for being here on The Moment. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to uh, be doing the podcast. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this is one of the first podcasts you've done, right? It is, yeah. Uh, I this actually, I think it's the first one that will be out uh, that maybe that I've ever done. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, so uh, I wasn't going to start with this, but I, I, I guess I, I will um, because I've obviously been so fascinated for so long by that moment that you got to the final table and 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 lost, and you, you know, you gave us permission to depict it. And I've always wondered how that all hit you at the time, uh, because, you know, we we used you as uh, even though you were someone who had accomplished something amazing by getting to the final table, we used you to I indicate when when someone is um, is gutted at a, at a table. And, you know, that 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 clip was played for me by. Uh, Jonathan Schechter, Shecky Green, when Dave and I were first researching to make the movie. And I watched it over and over and over again because I could identify so much more with you than with Johnny in that situation. I'm, you know, I, I understand the feeling of almost getting there and coming up short and uh, especially at the card table. And so I'm wondering uh, what that whole experience was like. Well, it's funny because when I first saw the script, I, uh, I I remember reading the lines that were uh, that were about me, and I and I and I was you know, immediately offended and flushed, and felt like you know this is uh, <laughs> this is this is ter this is terrible. Uh, but but I also recognized well, I, you know, originally I had been excited about being involved in any project with John Dahl, who's a, who was a director that I really respected, and. Uh, and I did, I, I think I signed before I saw the script, but I'm not really sure. And, uh, but ultimately I did recognize that, uh, that it was, it was overall going to be a positive thing. And, uh, and it didn't take me very long before I, I felt fine about it. And it was just, uh, you know, I thought, first of all, it's fair in the sense that I, what I didn't play well, uh, I was a bit overwhelmed in the moment. And secondly, you certainly have artistic license, but you didn't even really need it, given that, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can be that excited about how I played that. <laughs> yeah, did, um, did, uh, did you, I've always wanted to know this and I've never asked you it. I don't know. I always mean to and I forget. Did you and Johnny have a deal before that? 
No, I, uh, we discussed a deal, but he wanted more than his fair share, or I thought it was more than his fair share. Perhaps it was fair. I don't even remember the details of the deal now, but given his advantage and experience, it, it may have been a fair deal. I don't remember. Uh, right. But as a young person, you couldn't, as a young person who thought I want to win my first bracelet, uh, you didn't want to make the deal and uh, and you wanted the money from it. You didn't want to make the deal if you thought it didn't favor you. You thought you had more of a chance. I, I just thought I wanted to make a fair deal if there was one. I, I think he asked for something. I, I, if if I remember correctly, I think he asked for something that was that was I felt was unfair to my side. Uh, you know, looking back, maybe it wasn't uh, given right. the fact that he, he had he had tremendous experience heads up, and I, di- I didn't have any experience. You had had very little, no experience. You mean heads up at the final table of a tournament? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was I had I was not. I mean, there weren't very many tournaments back in those days anyway. But this was the first tournament, or certainly, I think it was the first tournament I'd played. But it, it maybe maybe I'd played a preliminary event or two at the World Series. I forget exactly, but I had played some satellites. But that was about it. And uh, and afterwards, um, with the afterwards uh, when the movie came out. Did you feel like it was going to... By then, you had already won bracelet. You know, you were in a different place even than when you lost that thing. Uh, You had proven, actually, that you were one of the best poker players in the world, like time and time again. Uh, Did it shift the public's perception or did it just make you more well-known? I think it made me more well-known. I don't know that it impacted my reputation in any way. Overall, I you know it has to be good to be. I mean that that movie I think was tremendous for poker. It was it was uh, it got a lot of people. I hear all the time people say that was that was the movie that got them interested in poker. So that movie was a big plus for poker, and uh, I certainly didn't feel like it had a, a a negative impact on me. Yeah, I remember when I was first going to meet you right after that. I was like, I hope he understands why. And then you were such a gentleman as you are, and that obviously allowed us to become uh, friends. All right, I want to let's go back, and then we'll we'll, we'll come back um, to sort of modern day. Uh, when when did you first fall in love with games of uh, imperfect information? Like, who were you in in your in your life then? Were you uh, someone who cared a lot about school and stuff, and then this uh, enthusiasm took you a- away from that? Like, what was uh, the beginning of your engagement in, in those kinds of imperfect I- information games? And and were you good at them r- right away? Did they just make sense to you right away, or did you have to work at it? Well, I started off playing backgammon, and, and uh, I lived up on 101st Street in West End at the time, and there was a, a really large games club called uh, Chess City on 100th Street and Broadway. What was it called? It was called Chess City. Right. And uh, it was primarily a chess club, but they played backgammon and other games, Scrabble and things like that. And uh, my brother and I just kind of stumbled on it one day and I went upstairs and it was pretty quiet. I think it was early in the afternoon. There really wasn't a whole lot going on, but there was this one backgammon game going on in the back. It was kind of fairly noisy, and uh, so it attracted us. I walked over and just kind of stood there and was fascinated by all these people who were discussing the the game. And so I got interested. I got a board. I started playing a little bit in high school with some of my friends, and uh, I picked up uh, Paul McGrill's book, which is really the Bible of the game. And that book really suddenly I was better than any, any of the kids that I was playing with in huh. high school. Right. And, uh, that was really the light, the, the, the big change for me. And, how old, uh, how old do you think you were then, Eric? Uh, I would have to say I was probably 16. It's possible I was even 15, but probably 16. And, and you read the book and then, and that turned you into a, that plus some ability turns you into a better player. 
Yeah. So now, yeah, now I had the advantage of I had a lot more information than the kids in my school that, that I was playing with. And it became kind of a steady earn for me in school. I would play during the breaks and after school and uh, play with a lot of the other kids. And, and uh, I was, you know, of course, at that time, much better than them because I'd actually put some work into it. And that got me interested in it. And then there was a there was a place called the game room. Uh, I don't know if you remember this place because it's it's in your neighborhood. Do you remember where the China Club was at the Beacon of Hotel? Of course, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. So before the China Club, it was the game room, and it was the same owners as Chess City, and uh, they, you know, they had same type of setup. There were there were a lot of chess players, and some chess ex- exhibitions took place there. Many backgammon players, lots of Scrabble players, and uh, pinball. There was a bar. Uh, it was a pretty cool little place, and uh, and that that was basically uh, that became my hangout. And uh, and it, it was around that time also that you know I was when I guess towards the end of the high school, and then as I went into college. And I was playing a lot of backgammon and I was making decent money. And so it was very distracting for me. Uh, right. You know, it was very hard for me to focus on schoolwork when I was making a, a fair amount of money. Were, were, were you, uh, was it occupying like most of your, th- even in high school as you got serious about it, did you find it kind of like monopolizing your thoughts and and your and your free time thinking about the game you know the playing of the game but then the thinking about the game too and and were they mostly adults in those places when you walked in or mostly kids it was all adults yeah there were there were uh there were a bunch of people that were games player pros uh it was it was a pretty colorful place there were you know many uh russian immigrants who were chess players and games players and uh there was uh it was it was pretty lively and uh it was it was there that i i played a fair you know i played pretty much almost every day and i met uh fran goldfarb there and fran was one of the best female uh backgammon players in the world maybe the best at the time and she took an interest in me i think i asked her recently what what was it that uh, that stared her interest at all and she just said that I was just such an enthusiastic kid that I just loved the game so much. <laughs> right. So, well, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was great. I mean, she was, uh, she then introduced me to Roger Lowe, who at the time was the best young player in the world and possibly the best player in the world. And uh, that was a very exciting moment for me, getting to play him for low stakes. And then I was in there one day and, Paul McGrill came in with Lynn Goldsmith, who was another top female player, and uh, it was a, it was a, it was just a very exciting time. I mean, at that time, really the center of backgammon in the world was in New York, but it was taking place at the Mayfair. Right. And uh, so, at some point, uh, Fran brought me up to the Mayfair, and I was around the best players in the world, and that was just you know that was really the changer for me. Also, just getting a chance to play with and get to know Paul McGrill. And McGrill was just this incredible figure for all of us. He just was this really generous guy who just loved backgammon. He was so enthusiastic, and he was definitely the best backgammon teacher in the world. And uh, he took an interest in me, and I would... I, I mean, I could call him at two, three in the morning when I would finish playing and say, what are you up to? And he'd say, come on over and I'd, you know, go over to his house That's on awesome. some place. And we would just hang out and go, you know, play matches and go over them and talk about them. You mean you would say to him, uh, I had this moment in this match and I did this and should I have done that? And you guys would would talk through what had just happened to you sometimes? I think there were, yeah, I think there were plays. He had he had little uh, little cards that I could write in positions on. And, and then so cool. he had recorded matches, so we were able to go over matches. At the time, he was writing a weekly column for the New York Times, and he would show that to me, and we would go over it. And 
there were a couple of times when I actually found mistakes in the, in the column, which, which was really exciting for me. Satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Did you find it easier to, to, you know, when you were a kid like that, what, you know, you're, you're very, very tall person and obviously you were tall in high school. I imagine you were tall in high school, right? No, actually, like, I really wasn't. I, I when did late. you become tall? It was very late. Uh, some of it, uh, it was either late high school or early college. I, I was a very short kid. I was the third shortest kid in my class in 10th grade. Uh, oh, I never so, knew that somehow. That's amazing. Because you're, what are you, six what? I'm six six now. Right, yeah. Um, what's funny is that my youngest daughter, the exact same thing happened to her. She was very small throughout her life. And then all of a sudden she shot up and now she's 5'10". Right. That's wild. Um, yeah. But did you find it easier to talk to adults than kids? Like what? Because there was some, I was like that in certain ways where I could be in an environment with grownups and it made more sense to me a lot of the time. And um, I liked their conversation. I just liked listening to it. You know, words fascinated me in the same way that the games fascinated you. Was that easier for you or did you have to make adjustments to fit in with the grownups? I think it was more making adjustments. I mean, it was it was. It was a real learning experience for me. I, I, I feel like that was, you know, a central part of my education was hanging around with these people. And it was, it was a great group of people. They were smart and they were ethical. And uh, just being around them, uh, it, I just felt like so much of their behavior uh, rubbed off on me. I think at the time, the two best players in the world were, uh, the two best young players in the world were Roger Lowe and Jason Lester. And they both played at the Mayfair. And uh, it was just, for, you know, for me to be around them and see they were just su such classy people. And you, you never heard either one of them talk about themselves or describe themselves as great players, uh, even though they were, you know, two of the three best players in the world at the time. Uh, there just was... Um, it, it was it was just kind of an experimental feeling where everybody was just trying to trying to yes. learn from each other. And and were your parent were your in your home life was everyone and and like your teach were people cool with you being out late at night playing these games and gambling and stuff? I mean, how did you manage that in in your in your in your house? Uh, my mother was always fine with it. She was always supportive of it. And uh, my dad didn't like it at all. And uh, but they didn't live together. My dad lived in L.A., so right. He did, I, did, I didn't really have to. You know, he didn't like it. Uh, I think he. It, what turned him around was w once I found poker, and once I started to have success at poker. You know, he had people at work that were coming up to him and saying, "Hey, I saw your son in this tournament," or that huh. that kind of thing. And then he started to like it. And uh, so I was happy that he finally turned around. And it turned out, you know, he ended up enjoying it. That's, uh, that's great. That must have been incredibly rewarding for you. Eric, you're in college when, when you're getting incredibly serious about this. You're obviously like an incredibly smart person. And was there a conscious choice to put more focus on the games than on the scholastic thing? Uh, were you thinking about options for yourself, like leaving options by doing well enough in school to get the kind of job that you wanted in case the game thing didn't work out? Were most of your eggs in the school basket? Like... You know, an obsession like this. How were you? How were you balancing this obsession with the rest of your life? Uh, I didn't really feel that. Think, or I didn't really think that far ahead. Right. So I was, I was playing backgammon. I was making money. It was very exciting for me. And uh, I didn't. I wasn't really thinking. I think I had some vague idea that I would go into the business world and I could be successful there. But you know, it is funny because then a few day, a few years later after playing backgammon for a few years. And there was a somewhat limited upside, even though I was making decent money for a young kid. It certainly yeah. wasn't great money. Uh, I do remember being, you know, maybe I was 22 years old and really becoming concerned and scared that, <laughs> what, what, like, the, you know, you have this sense when you're a teenager 
you have this very optimistic idea of the, the way things will unfold when you get older, that, you know, you could be successful in the business world or you could, you'd find success in one way or another. But then I, I was around 22 and I just looked around and I thought, wow, the world is not waiting for me at all. And, uh, and I, yeah. I'm really in trouble here. You know, and I, I, it was, it was very concerning. And I, and I, I really remember it was one of the scariest periods of my life where I just thought, I'm, I, I just don't know how I'm going to, there, there, there's no, I didn't really see a clear path to, to becoming successful. Right. Like you didn't know how you were going to make your way through the world. Right. Exactly. And, and then, and I met some people who were in the business world and I could see they had, they brought a lot of knowledge to the table. They had, a, you know, they had gone to good schools and they had a background and had a lot of, of understandings that I didn't have. So I, but that was, that was really the, the, the time when reality hit me in the face. And, uh, it was, it was very scary. What did you do? Cause you were just out of college, I guess, and living in New York. So what did you do when that hit you in the face? Like, so you were scared. What did, and I know you took at some point you took a job, but what, what were you, so what did you do? And then what did you do re with regards to the, to the games? Uh, I just, I, I just continued to play and, uh, I was trying to think about what other opportunities there might be. Uh, I'm not really sure when the idea of wall street came into my mind. I, 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 I think what, well, what happened with, uh, I was, you know, I had already gained a reputation as a backgammon player. Yes. And some of the backgammon players that, uh, that had played at the Mayfair went on to Wall Street. And a couple of them recruited me to go to work at Payne Weber and trade uh, Ginny Mays. And so that was kind of the transition to work, and uh, which, which was very fortunate for me because I, was, I, I really was concerned about the limited upside of backgammon. Yes. And, and I've never um, actually known uh, the way that the, it's funny, I know a lot of people or a few people who were backgammon players at the Mayfair then. And for people who don't know, I mean, the Mayfair is the Chesterfield, the Chesterfield and Rounders based on the Mayfair. And I spent a lot of time at the Mayfair Club after you were gone. You know, I spent a lot of time at the Mayfair Club in the end of 1995, 1996, 1997, 1998. Um, and, but I never, I, can you walk through what happened uh, to you vis-a-vis -vis discovering poker and how did poker become the dominant thing? Because when I was there, there was very little backgammon still going on. Once in a while, someone would take out um, a backgammon board, but they would be over in the corner and or at that one little table. People, it wasn't really like um, the thing there. Even during the day, it was seven card stud, and then at night there'd be Hold'em and stud. And and um, do you remember what happened or how you all started playing poker, and sp specifically how you started becoming super interested in the game and trying to get better at it? Yeah, I, I, there was, well, when I first went up to the Mayfair, it was on 57th Street on the east side. Right. It was in a nice luxury building on the second floor. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a backgammon and a bridge club then. And that was it. And, uh, and, and then what happened was sometime after I'd gone out to Vegas to play in a poker, in a, in a backgammon tournament. And, uh, and I had known a few of the poker players because uh, they had played backgammon, Puggy Pearson, world champion, right. Chip Reese, a legendary player, yes. Stu Unger, another legend. And they were all backgammon players. And, and Chip, uh, in particular, was a very good player. And uh, so I knew them a little bit. And I just, you know, they were fascinating to me. I, I, I remember cutting out an article about Stu Younger that was in the Daily <laughs> News, you know, way back in the day. After he, just, like after he won his first World Series or something? Yeah, I was fascinated right. by these guys. Yeah, me too, obviously, and, yeah. Yeah, and so I was uh, so I was out in Vegas at this backgammon tournament. I just remember wandering into some gift shop, and there was a $2 pamphlet uh, that David Skolansky had written. And I picked it up, and I... I read it and then I started playing. I played, you know, one and two dollar poker 
and this was during the backgammon tournament and uh and i won the first time i played and you know that's always a bad sign that's <laughs> that's gonna draw you in <laughs> even though i was terrible i had no idea what i was doing uh so that that was that was it then i when i went back to new york uh there was we started playing some heads up matches at the mayfair uh just you know with backgammon with uh backgammon chips of me and steve zolotow who's a well-known poker player and uh, another friend bob danish and uh and then little by little it kind of developed into a real poker game and uh were you playing stud or draw what were you playing we were playing no limit hold'em already Uh, you were playing no limit hold'em yeah and z already had a reputation around the city as a a very good no limit hold'em player but they were having tournaments and uh and then they just uh, a, a game developed at the mayfair that was low stakes and it was many many of the people who were playing including myself were complete amateurs and and for the first year or so they actually barred the good players so uh, it wasn't until about a year later that you had people like dan harrington and howard letter right. come into the game was mickey appleman there then too or not yet he was around but i don't remember whether he was playing with us when there were when we were amateurs and at that time he was such a big shot in sports that yes. i don't know i don't know how interested he was in the, in the poker Got a big shot in the sports gambling world, right? When when I was yeah. at the Mayfair, Mickey was the scariest play. I was like very scary to have to be in a poker hand against him. Yeah, he's a I, terrific I just, player. Yeah, I just always felt like I was on the losing side. I mean, I just always knew that I didn't know what was going on in the hand when I was in a hand against Mickey, and it was very destabilizing feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even when you knew you had the nuts, you would ask. I mean, me. Even if I knew I had the nuts, I'd be going, "Shit, I probably don't really. I can't. I'm, there must be. I must be losing somehow." Um, uh, because of that look in, in, in that dude's um, eyes and because of the fact that he always... He's such a brilliant guy. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and I don't even know if he knows that he play, we played against one. I mean, he does. He's so smart. He definitely knows. But like, if, for me, it was a big deal. I was nobody and totally unknown and he was Mickey Appleman. Eric... When, when you were doing this, and were you um, taken in the way I was by the romance of the whole idea of being sort of uh, at, in the gray area of the world? Like, I always loved the idea that I would walk into a place like this. And it was, a, as you said, these were honorable people, which is one of the things I always loved about the poker world back then. You know, there are a lot of things different about it now. But the idea that it, uh, it, it was a place that had its own moral code, but it had a moral code. It was a place that was uh, uh, full of people who had to trust one another and trust this situation that was not illegal, but not legal either. Did did that part uh, appeal to you or was that beside the point for you? Well, it was, uh, I don't, I think, I think what attracted me at the time was just the independence of it. The idea that I wasn't answering to anybody. I could, I could make my own hours I could stay up till five in the morning if I wanted to, or I could take the day off. And uh, I did love the feeling of walking in that place. And just uh, there, there were games every day at one time. You know, I think maybe, it, maybe at some point it became two or three times a week only. But, uh, but it was it really, it, it did have a special feeling being, being in the Mayfair. It just, we had good food there. It is funny. I guess you and I didn't have any overlap or very little overlap, I guess. Yeah, we didn't meet. You and I met, I think, late in Las Vegas when later. Um, right. uh, I think we met right after Rounders came out or when it was about to come out, maybe at the World Series with Matt and Edward that time. Um, and no, obviously I knew who you, you know, you were a famous person to us uh, when we were at the Mayfair. And, you know, when I was there, it was John Schechter and... John Richmond and all those, you know, that was, that was the, the, and Mike Selza and that was the group of people who were there. Um, right. And other Peter Olson. And I mean, all people, you, a lot of people you played with, but like in a different, I guess I was at the tail end of one period of it. And then the beginning of the other. So did you never play there when it moved downtown to the twenties? Oh, I played there a lot. 
yeah, I like that location. And, yeah, and we and we had good food down there too. The food was so good at the Mayfair. That's true. It was. It was really good. Somehow that. Yeah. I, I don't know if that was because of Mike Schickman or why, but the food was really good. So yeah, um, I don't know how many years I was playing there, but I, I would I would say it had to be at least a year or two. What What made you good at What made you good at poker right away? And and then did it did it take up your time more than bad? Did you fall more in love with it than backgammon, or did you realize there was just more upside for you professionally? Well, I did fall in love with it, and uh, it, it was fortunate that there was more of an upside. I did feel like there was more of a cap to backgammon for sure, uh, but it was just more that it was a game that interested me, and I never really had the tremendous ambition with it. It wasn't like... I, I, I run into people all the time now that have this idea that, well, they're going to be one of the top players. And uh, I, I, I never thought that. I just, I thought these, these guys were like space aliens. I, I never thought that I could be, you know, could be, could be in there with them. It, it just seemed like they were in an entirely different universe than I could ever be in. Uh, but I did think that I could make money from it uh, if, you know, given the right situations. And I was fascinated by the people that did make money from it. And how did you study? Because obviously you did close that gap. So back then, how did you study? What, how, like, in other words, you would play, but how would you then think about it? And, and, and what was your routine to get, to get better at the game when you were young? And there were very limited resources then, you know, there were David Sklansky's books, Mason Malmuth's books, Doyle's books, but like Doyle's book, but there wasn't the internet. Uh, Mike Carroll was writing his books, but there, there, there wasn't the, the, the internet really. So how, what was the process by which you were getting better? Yeah, it really was very different back then. And really, you just got better by playing. And uh, there were a lot of us that played together then. And sometimes we would go off and we would talk about hands. I remember, you know, people like Dan Harrington and Howard Letter were always very generous in terms of talking about hands and and uh, you just basically just playing with and watching the best players because once the good players came in, I mean, there were really world class players in the game. So you'd watch them and see what hands they played and how they played them, and and then and then funny enough, there were. I remember there was one guy who was an amateur player and uh, pretty much counted on to be one of the people who was who was a loser in the game. Uh, but he went on this really long streak at the Mayfair. And I, I remember being really interested in what is it that he's, is he doing something right? I, I do right. remember a lot of us discounted him at first thinking that, he was just a bad player on a lucky streak, but then at some point you had to give him credit. And uh, so, you know, that, that was it's kind of a funny part of my learning process was seeing that even somebody who wasn't an experienced pro had some, some plays that maybe were outside the box for a lot of the pros at the time, but, uh, but that were effective. And, was he uh, playing hands? He was just playing hands differently or playing different starting hands in a different way? He was playing hands differently. I think he had a certain aggressiveness that many of the pros yeah. didn't have. He was willing to take a lot of chances and find situations that worked. And uh, it was just interesting because so many people discounted the fact that he could actually win. And uh, But then, you know, playing in the game, you would just see, well, you know, he must be doing something right. And, How uh, did you learn to handle the um, the emotional swings back then? Because, I mean, I remember nights, and you know, I had a job that was paying me pretty well when I was playing at the Mayfair, and I never played really above, one, only once or twice I played sort of above my financial comfort level. And even so, I remember that feeling when, when I would get beat because... I played really, I played badly, you know, which always was worse for me than just the love. You know, when I just got outplayed and I, um, uh, you know, knew that I was being bluffed out and I folded anyway or I caught and then reacted wrongly. And I, there were, I remember those, you know, you'd walk outside and get a cab at 5.30 or 6 in the morning 
And it was just such a, um, a lonely feeling, that feeling of getting wiped out at the table. And I know you were a winning yeah, player. I, I know that feeling well. No, I mean, I know you're a winning player always, but like... No, how no you... not always. Obviously, you know, we, we had plenty of, plenty of bad nights. And, and, and sure. so when you would have those bad nights would but you know for me it was never my life eric i wasn't my living and and, I, and at some point early on i knew i was going to try to write about it and change my life that way but uh, um how did how did you learn to manage your emotions because you know uh tilting is such a huge part of what happens to people and a huge determining factor in a way and whether somebody can do this for their life or can't do this for their life is how they process the bad moments and and how did you learn to process those moments? Well, yeah, it's funny because I, I do think a lot of that came from backgammon because right. I noticed that you you could play a, a great player, a, a super talented player, but if you were solid and they couldn't handle losses, uh, you could you could be a profitable player even if they were better than you. Uh, you mean if you and, could manage, I want to grind down on that. You mean even if you could, if you could manage your emotional state and they couldn't, that gave you an edge that almost, and sometimes did make up for the fact that they were a more proficient player. Exactly. And, and this, you know, you would see this a lot and, and I certainly have seen it in poker as well, but, but in backgammon, uh, it was, I, but I, I do think it was a process for me because I, I, I remember backgammon used to frustrate me and I, I remember I used to get I, I remember there was one night when I was losing and I was so upset with the dice I went to the Mayfair bathroom and flushed them down the toilet so, <laughs> so, 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 so I wasn't always an unemotional player but I did notice that people who were uh, who's, and it also works both ways most of the time if people are losing many many people who are losing tend to lose their heads and they tend to take more risk. And you know, you saw that day in and day out at the backgammon table, but you could also see where people were doing well and, and now we're, we're trying to push their edge in spots where there really wasn't an edge anymore. Uh, but, but yeah, most of, most of the really, profitable backgammon sessions, particularly against good players, to, took place because somebody just lost their head. And so you were able to take that to you were able to take that to poker. Did did you ever have a, a, a bad run in the beginning with poker where you wondered whether you'd be able to do it? Or were you mostly month to month in the black enough that you knew, okay, I, I have a chance to do this? Well, I mean, that's kind of funny because I think that it's happened throughout my career where I've had, you know, runs and, and I've questioned my ability and, and uh, it's, it, you are always trying to put a check on yourself and trying to figure out, do you still, do you have an advantage? What are people doing that, uh, that how, you know, how can you improve your game? But it, it's a difficult game because it really is, it's hard to evaluate how how well you're playing. And if things aren't going well, it's very difficult to determine. Is it because you're not playing well or have you just had a bad six months because the, the, the uh, variance has gone against you? Yeah, you almost have to like figure out what your own personal emotional tendency is to then discredit that and find the truth. Yeah, and it's still... it's. I mean, it's still with me to, 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 you know, to this day, I'm still always questioning, you know, what uh, does, can my game stand up against uh, the people that I'm playing against? And it's, uh, you know, it, it's getting, it's, it's definitely getting more and more difficult. Well, you've said that many times to me over the years and <laughs> I, I felt I, that throughout my whole career. It's true. Yes, I have heard you say that a lot. This is a question I ha had written down to ask you. I mean, when I look at the, the 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 players from the era at which you first announced yourself on the scene in '88, basically only you and Phil Helmuth are who are of the young guns of that era. You know, um, 
because you, you know, I was so fascinated with all of you and, um, and then Huck, I guess, slightly in the next era, but you're the, you too, because Daniel was really around 2000. Um, but what do you think it is? And you guys are obviously so different emotionally and so different per, in personality, but both of you are still having really great results from time to time. Like, you know, uh, what do you think it is about the, the two of you? And I guess you can include Daniel if you want, even though I do think he's in a later generation. I mean, he really came around 12 years later, but what, what is it that, 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 that you guys have in common that you're still able to be competitive with, with wherever the game has gone? Uh, what, what does Phil and I have in common? I, I, I mean, I think maybe just that we still are interested in playing the game and we still love the game. Uh, I do feel like we have, we've had somewhat different career paths and have somewhat uh, different uh, approaches to the game. But I mean, that's one of the things that's fascinating about poker is that you can come to it with many different, uh, different approaches and still find a way to be successful. Uh, what do you mean different? Uh, I know what you mean by different ca- career paths in a, in a way, but, but, but not, but I mean, you both played mostly tournaments at a certain point, right? Am I yeah, wrong? Yeah, but I mean, Phil's, uh, Phil's focus has always been on the World Series tournaments. Yes. And, uh, and that's where he's had his success. Whereas uh, I've been playing uh, mostly the high rollers uh, like the, the last 10 years or so, which, which is a very different field than, than the World Series fields because you're, you're just not playing against very many amateurs. So it's an entirely different challenge. And, uh, you know, what he's done, his, his results really are remarkable. Uh, but, but we're kind of in, in a, you know, in a sense, we're playing in, in different environments. Right. Right. That makes sense to me because he, I mean, he plays in, so, he doesn't, I, I don't, I mean, I've seen him playing a couple of these high rollers, but I get it. He's not playing in them nearly with the frequency that you are. And why did you decide to put your efforts there? Uh, do you have most of yourself in these things or do you still have backers or people like that? How do you decide yeah. that? In the high rollers, I have a backer, and in the regular tournaments, I don't. And did so, that influence but, the know, fact anything, that you have a? Did the fact that you have a backer um, influence your decision to play in those events? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I certainly think without a backer, I wouldn't have been able to play. Part of part of it also is, I mean, aside from just the financial swings, I mean, you know, the, the higher roller world is pretty insane. I, th- I think it was a couple of years ago, Bryn Kenny was up 7.4 or, or had cashed 7.4 million for the year and he was stuck for the year. <laughs> so right. <laughs> it just, it's just well, like, wait, he was stuck the, for the year. He was stuck for the year in high roller tournaments or in cash games attendant to the high roller. No, in high roller tournaments. I mean, so the, the, the uh, so the entry fees are insane. And the swings are insane. And so... Are, are you talking about the million dollar ones or the $100,000 entry fees? Well, there's, there's one million dollar one. You know, we've had a few million dollar tournaments, but generally 100,000. Some of them are 250 or 270. Right. Uh, and then they're rebuys. So, you know, very often people are rebuying in these tournaments. So... Yeah, it's really, uh, so I can't handle those types of swings. And there's, there's nobody really on the tour that, that does. Uh, there's anybody who's playing the high roller tour has, has, a, has a backer because, you know, there's nobody really wealthy enough to take those kinds of swings. You mean to, to get the money out of their minds where losing a half a million dollars, uh, even if you could technically afford it, meaning you wouldn't have to sell your apartment, it, 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 it impacts it's too much of a percentage it impacts you right oh actually maybe there are a couple of players that don't have backers i'm not, I'm not sure but they, they probably even those guys piece themselves out or trade pieces sure. with other top players sure uh, that I'm makes thinking, sense like maybe i caxton has a high, very high percentage of himself but but i'm pretty sure right. he, even he trades out and the and the billionaires who show up they put themselves in right, right. Like dave I mean, einhorn is putting himself in when he plays 
Yeah, non-pros are putting themselves in. Yeah, I don't think any of them have backing deals. And do you do you worry about the uh, I, I think I would feel so much fucking pressure in that spot when I'm backed also. Uh, does that concern you at all or no? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because you would you would think that maybe that would take pressure off you because you had a backer. But in, in, in a sense, I want to do well for my backer. So I feel more pressure when I'm when I'm being backed than when I'm not. Uh, because I feel like I can take the swings and I don't, yes. I don't really, I don't really mind winning and losing for myself, but I do feel an obligation to, to make money for my backer. Uh, you, you, also you for know, tax reasons, you kind of have to have a backer because if you're paying, you know, if you're paying say 40% in tax, yes. uh, on, on your winning years and, then uh, you know, it, it just, and you're playing with you know, in these large fields with, with such big swings, uh, it, it, it's kind of, it would be kind of reckless to play on your own, no matter yes. how much money you had. Sure. Th- that makes complete sense to me. I realize I asked this question badly about uh, you and Phil, because um, I, I don't mean to lump the, I don't want to lump the two of you in with, with this part of the question, which is, what do you think it's like, you know, when I, when I read the things that a lot of the younger not even, you know, the, the true math-focused game theory poker players talk. And then you look at the results and they all, it, it, is, it seems true that the game theory optimal play is, um, makes a big difference. What is it about you that allows you to still compete at such a high level as one of the only old school people? You know, I've talked to Daniel about it and I know what Daniel does. He hires some of those guys and spends a lot of time with them or gets coached and like, you know, works his ass off to to, to be able to. Uh, what do you do? One, do you still love the game that much? Is that part of it? And, and two, what do you do to change and keep up with what's going on, but then to keep enough of sort of what made you great that it still applies? Uh, well, at the, at the last few years, the game really has changed. I would say the last three years, there's been a dramatic change in the way the game is played. Once the computers came in and people started focusing on some of these uh, computer programs that they can buy. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, up until then, you could really just play. It was just kind of a playing by the seat of your pants and making things up as you went along. But now people are much more specific about opening ranges and betting and things like that. And uh, I, I think I would be retired from high rollers now if it weren't for Jason Kuhn, who has been really nice and really generous uh, towards me. And, uh, and when I've had questions, uh, he, you know, he's answered them honestly. And he, he's been a very supportive friend. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever read this book uh, by Adam Grant called uh, "Good to Great." No, no, no. You mean I'm given no, take. No, give and take. Give and give take. And take. I love that right. book. Yes, I love that. Book. Yeah, it's a great book. And uh, and in it, he describes like three different variations of, of of who you can be, and one of them is is just if you're just overly generous with your time. Uh, that 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 is the most you'll you'll end up having more friends and making more money in the long run, and uh, it, it, whenever I think of Jason Kuhn, I think of that book because he just has this incredibly generous nature to him. He's just uh, he's and and as a result, you see so many people who you know he's he's friendly with all the top players. Everybody loves him, and he just has this you know incredibly generous nature and. And I feel comfortable asking him questions, and and uh, it's been that's been very very helpful to me. Um, right, and in, in terms of keeping your edge, when you say these computer programs, you, you mean game theory optimal computer programs that explain uh, what, like the all the Ed Miller stuff, basically, like how to uh, how to choose what to do when to play perfectly, basically. Yeah, it's gotten so much more specific now where people know what hands to open with and what hands to raise with and what hands to three bet and what to call four bets with and and then how to bet the hands. You know, do you bet 30% or 70% or 150% or, you know, you just, you just have, 
you see things now that you never saw before with people betting 200% pot, sometimes even more than that. And uh, it can be very disorienting. I mean, it, it certainly was for me for a while. And it still is. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like I'm confused every time I sit down at the table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's just, it, it's that kind of game. It, it, it just, I mean, it, and I mean, this has been going on for years, even before the computers came in. You know, I would sit down at the poker table and basically the, my question was always, what the fuck is going on? Uh, so well, that's a very powerful, but okay. But, but if, even though you're sort of saying it lightly and mocking yourself, you know, that's a very open way to sit down at the poker table, isn't it? I remember I asked you this question years and years ago I, because all these poker books at the time were saying, particularly Doyle's, you know, you, 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 once you put somebody on a hand, don't second guess that decision. And you and I were in Las Vegas, not together, but we were somehow both there. And I remember I, we were at a table and then we took a walk and I said, I asked you about this and you said, no, no, no. I, what I want to do is constantly keep myself open for new information. I don't want to, I don't want to decide. And then that's it. You're like, I think you need to constantly be ready to learn that there's something else going on. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think that's very important is just, is just maintaining, you know, an, an open mind and trying to see what what people are doing and, and how people are playing certain hands and, and constantly making adjustments. It, there there are there are very few patterns in poker that really hold up because every time you're at a table you're with seven different people that that uh, you know have different stack sizes and different moods and different styles. And so you really do have to always be open to adjusting your game in the moment and, and really try and be as open-minded as possible. Yeah. I, I, I have said that I, I've taken that thing you said to me. I mean, it's funny, you know, you talk about the way you looked at those people who were excellent at poker. And I've always looked at you that way, Eric, as someone who's, uh, I admire for the way you think things through, you know, and, and in, in, in life and in, um, you know, we ran into you the other day, I was with Sammy in, in, in the city and I, I ran into you and, um, uh, Sam asked you a COVID-related question, and afterwards he was like, "You know, Eric's the best guy." Sammy was like, "Eric's the best person at understanding risk that we know. We got to ask him everything." And I do think that that's true. Like your your the way your mind works about stuff. And I've, you know, when you said that thing to me about always taking in information, I have applied that to other areas in life, and I think it's so valuable. Which is, yeah, have an opinion. It's what Mark Andreessen says, who to me is the smartest person I've ever met, probably. And Mark Andreessen says, you know, uh, strong opinions weakly held. And I yeah, thought, I like and, right. And that's, you know, jives, I think with, with, with your take. And it, it's a very, um, it's a very valuable piece of counsel at the, at the card table and, and in, in life as, as well. Um, and, but can you talk a little bit about your decision to, um, because I, I know being one of the best poker players in the world matters to you or being thought of that way matters. It, even if you say it doesn't, it matters to everybody who tries, who's you know, close to the best at something. But you made a decision at a certain point not to really play cash games or not to play big, you know, you'll play neighborhood games, but not to play big, huge cash games very much. And I'm, I'm wondering about that. Like what went into that decision and what did you know about yourself that went into that decision? I mean, I used to play a lot of cash. That was uh, that was one of the ways that I originally built my bankroll, and uh, and I loved cash then. But there was a there just it just became less interesting to me. It just it just became particularly as the poker world grew and the tournament world grew. I really just I love the feeling of playing tournaments. I love the feeling of showing up at a tournament and playing. And the excitement of being at a final table, right. which which never gets old. You know, you get to a final table, and you're going to go home with either you know three times your buy-in or maybe a million dollars or more. Right. And so that that's that's what I love about playing is you just you know you're there for say six hours that day, and you can have you know what is a, you can win what can be a life-changing amount of money. And, uh, so, and, and so the challenge of sitting, being in that spot and trying to think well and trying to play well 
and trying to understand what everyone else is doing is uh, that that to me that's what draws me. I just I just love those situations and uh, I, I, I I mean I feel, just feel like every single time I'm at a final table, it's a really it's a special and unique situation. And yes, it just, it just thrills me to play them. Whereas cash it just yes. seems like a grind to me. I don't <laughs> you know I, I just don't get. I mean, first of all, once once the tournament scene exploded. I didn't really have that much time for cash. So any time that I had that well, I was not playing a tournament, I was very happy to have the downtime to hang out and do the things that I wanted to do. If I played cash as well, you know, then my entire life would you do would just be playing poker. And I, and I was I feel like I've always had I've always been able to have really good balance of you know, leading a, a life and uh and playing tournaments and, and and that's been important to me you're so good to talk to because that's where i was going and that was what i was going to wrap up with was i've met your daughters i've seen you with your family uh i've been around you and your wife and you are truly like an engaged family person your daughters are great uh you're close with them um you still spend time with even though they're grown-ish you still spend a lot of time with them and um that is rare in people who choose any kind of an outsider's life and with the swings that the poker life has. And I, it's not an accident, Eric. Can you just talk a little bit about how you found a way to balance all that stuff? And like, how would you leave a bad loss because of the fluctuations? You know, even traders have a hard time. Like, how would you deal with, you know, you go away to a tournament, you get crushed, even though you should have won, you come home and your daughters want to talk about homework. Like, what was it like for you to switch gears in that way? And and how did you think about it? Like, how did you have this thing where you have this very long-running marriage and this family that works? Well, you know, as well as anyone, is that when, when you get home, even if you've had a tough day and you see your kids, all of a sudden the day turns around. And, yes. you know, any time with, with your kids and, and hanging out with them is is uh is special as they're growing up so i mean i was i really did you know and particularly as they were growing up i was playing a lot of cash in those days so i was able to make my hours so that i could go to their soccer games and pick them up from school and do things like that and have a have a normal life and then you know uh and it, it did turn out that we ended up having we, we we have a very close family and it's just uh I, they are still the thrill of my life. <laughs> yeah. So. I see that when you're with, no, I see that when you're with them. And were you always, as a last thing, I mean, was that, did you have to train yourself to compartmentalize? Because even I found, you know, if I had a bad day where, um, you know, a movie I thought was going to get greenlit, didn't get greenlit, you know, it, it required, I had to walk through Central Park and listen to some music and do a bunch of stuff to like, okay, now I won't be a dick, you know, and I would not be a dick ever at home. But like, I, I, it took a lot of like, a lot of work to, to compartmentalize that stuff. Or was it just natural for, for, for you to deal with disappointment um, without it impeding? I, I, I think it was somewhat developed in the sense that, you know, you do get to a point where you realize that uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a bigger, there's a large amount of variance and randomness in poker yes. and you're going to win some days and you're going to lose some days and you just have to accept that and, and not personalize it and not you to, just to have some separation from that. So that, um, you know, my wife always says that she never knows whether I've won or lost when I get home because I, I don't bring it home. I, it's just not. That's just, awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always been good about, you know, it, it's not, uh, it, 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 it is, yeah, when you say compartmentalize, I mean, I, I just, but I, even when my family's not around, I, I just don't feel like I take those, uh, I, I, I think I've, I've, I've developed enough over the years to, that I, I don't, I don't get really caught up in losses or, or in wins, you know, I, I, you know, cause you can be a dick when you win too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, one can. Um, 
There's no doubt, but I can't picture you being a dick in really any any circumstance, dude. You're such a uh, you're such a good guy, Eric Seidel. Uh, thanks so much for your graciousness throughout the years. Thanks for letting us use uh, the you losing to Johnny Chan and Rounders. It it's a <laughs> crucial thing um, in the movie. You also have won more bracelets than like anybody. And as I said. You're fourth on the all-time money money list, and uh, so it's clear that uh, you can come back from being uh, gutted in that way uh, in life. Uh, people can find Eric Seidel on Twitter. Uh, what's your name on there? Uh, Eric underscore Seidel. Eric is with a K. And um, Eric, good luck. Go go get him this year. Uh, Thanks. I when, appreciate that. When tournaments come, when tournaments come back, when the world uh, comes back, I'm gonna. All right, everybody. I will see you next time. You can write me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. and we'll see you next time. Bye.